Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. The question today is, is it inflation or deflation? Ansel Lindner, Bitcoin podcaster and writer over at bitcoinandmarkets.com, joins me to talk about his framework, and we chat about a range of things, inflation, deflation, the money stock, money supply, credit cycles over time, and what Bitcoin does for the world. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is organizing a conference, Pacific Bitcoin, in November this year. So keep an eye out for that. If you have friends who are new to Bitcoin, this is a great opportunity to bring them along to the conference where people can learn about Bitcoin and also chat and meet other like-minded Bitcoiners. There's an awesome range of speakers who are coming. Alex Epstein, Lynn Alden, CJ Wilson, Jeff Booth, Mark Moss, Alex Epstein, Pierre Rochard, just to name a few, and there's more coming. This is going to be an awesome week filled with events, educational opportunities, meetups, co-working, and parties. So come and join us at the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference in LA, November 10th and 11th, 2022. Go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code LEVERA for a discount on your tickets. Are you a Bitcoin builder or are you a Bitcoin merchant looking to take payment with Bitcoin and the Lightning Network? Voltage can help you out. They have constructed the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for Bitcoin builders. Now, this can apply to you whether you want to scale Bitcoin nodes instantly by the thousands or whether you want some quality inbound liquidity easily. With Voltage, you can go to the website and it's really fast. You can set up your Bitcoin node, your LND node, or your BTC pay server node in the cloud very quickly within minutes. What was once a headache is now simplified. So go and check it out for yourself. That website is voltage.cloud. If you're looking for Bitcoin hardware security, you can't go past CoinKite.com. Now, they are well known for the cold card, but they've got a range of products. They've got the Tap Signer. They have the Block Clock. These are all kinds of different devices that you can use all as part of your different security setup. And interestingly, they've got the Tap Signer, which they are uh, collaborating with the Nunchuck team to have NFC support. So this is an interesting development in the world of multi-signature. Now, of course, the really cool uh, device that you want to have is the Block Clock. They've got different versions. They've got the Block Clock Mini and the Block Clock Micro. Now, we have seen Jack Dorsey and the former Prime Minister of Thailand have this in the background while they are having their interviews. So if you want yours, go to coincard.com, use the code Levera to get a discount on your cold card or some of your other Bitcoin merchandise. And now onto the show with Ansel. Ansel, welcome to the show. Uh, Stefan, great to be here. It's an honor to be here. You share my love of Austrian economics, so great to be here. Yeah, uh, look, I, I think for some of us who were, well, I presume you were into Austrian economics even before you got into Bitcoin. I mean, it, it just feels like this perfect synergy of ideas. So, um, you know, I, I've been chatting with you in the background and always uh, interested to see your take on things as well, because there's this whole debate going on right now in the world about inflation or deflation. And I think that would probably be an interesting spot to start. So I guess from your perspective, what does this debate or idea look like? Okay, uh, jumping right into it, right in the deep end here. Uh, Okay, so inflation versus deflation. Um, I, I would define inflation, I think you would agree, as an increase in the money supply and deflation is the opposite of that. I see right now we are at the end of a multi-decade credit bubble. And so the end of that credit bubble is going to be deflationary and not inflationary. A lot of people like to say QE is money printing and uh, government spending is money printing, but I don't think that's the case. I think money is printed uh, when banks make loans. And so that's not QE and that's not government spending. The end of this credit bubble will be deflationary. And that's Bitcoiners don't like to hear that. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I think I, I probably slightly disagree, but kind of also agree in, on other points. So, I mean, the way I'm seeing it is obviously QA is a form of money printing, but it's just that that's not the dominant form. I think it's that the loan, the credit expansion is the main form of money creation or inflation in this case, in the Austrian definition. So to be clear, we're talking about the Austrian understanding of inflation, which means money creation or debasement also, whereas in the mainstream, they're thinking of it more from a CPI point of view, consumer price inflation, which is a different, I guess we can call them as two different kinds of inflation. So back to this whole question around inflation, deflation, and money supply metrics, maybe that's also a good spot to just get your view. How are you considering the money metrics? Because there are different ones, right? There's M0, base money. There's M1, M2, M3, etc. And some of these metrics get discontinued over time as well. So could you just give a bit of an overview how you are looking at this in terms of the different money metrics? Yeah, measurements of money. This is a, a common one that people like to throw at me on Twitter because uh, I'm not a, I, I don't think M2 really matters. M1 doesn't matter. None of these things matter because they don't measure the shadow money. They don't measure the euro dollar money that's offshore. If we're in a dollar as global reserve currency and the US is 20% of global GDP, that means you know M2 only really can even hope to capture about 20% of reality. 80% of reality is offshore. So I don't think that M2 is useful. It's actually kind of worth less than worthless because it distracts us from looking at the shadow system and trying to look at measurements that we can, uh, where we can see what the money's, what's going on with the money supply. So we can't observe it directly, but we can observe it through interest rates and uh, both in euro dollar rates and U.S. Treasury rates and bond rates and all of these things spreads. We can see what's happening with uh, the money supply that way. And so a common name that gets thrown around with the euro dollar is Jeff Snyder, as I'm sure you are aware as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, where would you distinguish your views from, say, a Jeff Snyder? Okay. Um, yeah, I think Jeff is uh, brilliant at what he does. But I would say he relies pretty much solely on his euro dollar thesis, where I kind of I rely on Austrian thinking, uh, my understanding of Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin, I would say it's important to understand cryptography, you know, crypto anarchy and and those types of things, uh, de decentralization. And then on top of that, I also add in some geopolitical thinking on like geographic determinism. And that would be Mackinder, Kaplan, Friedman, Zion, those in that kind of school. Uh, so I add all those things together plus the euro dollar system. So uh, I agree with Jeff on probably 75% of things. Gotcha. Yeah, because that's the other component. Obviously, uh, I think there are parts where I think lots of Bitcoiners would disagree with Jeff because he is coming from this idea that, oh, money supply should be elastic. Whereas obviously as Bitcoiners, we're, we're going the other way. We're saying, no, it should be inelastic. It should be 21 million and no more than that, of course. Um, but I think there is an interesting component there around understanding what's going on in the banking system outside of the US because the US regulators, the Federal Reserve, Treasury, etc., they don't have as much of an insight into what's going on outside in that rest of the world. And so uh, I'm curious, how do you try to assess what's going on in the rest of the world? Well, I start from my framework that the euro dollar system is a credit-based system. And so everybody, you know, I wouldn't even call it a fiat system. It's not fiat money because it actually has backing and that's the credit. So when you, when you make a loan, you also make an asset, 
right, on the other side of the balance sheet. So it's actually all money today, at least the national currencies, are backed by that asset that's printed with the money. So uh, the loan on the asset side of the balance sheet. So it's it's credit-based money. It's every dollar in the world is someone else's debt. And I forgot where I was going with that. So what was right. the question? So let me, uh, yeah, so I, let's, I guess, taking it back to how, let's say, the traditional Austrian is reading it. Like, let's say you just read Mises or Rothbard, and there's this basic idea that, okay, there's base money. There's monetary reserves at the by the commercial banks held uh, at the Federal Reserve, and then because they are when they issue out a loan, that's the creation of new money. And then when somebody is paying down a loan, that's in a sense destruction of money. And now in the I guess if you just read the typical uh, textbook sort of level answers, it will be oh, okay. There's a reserve ratio, and that's the amount to which they can. You know, print more now. I think in practice, others have written about this idea, like my friend Vijay Boyapati, who's written about this idea that actually maybe they're being more constrained more by capital requirements, things like Basel, Basel Three, and so on, where they say, "Oh, okay, you're only allowed to you, you have to maintain certain ratios in terms of capital." But then layering on, there's this whole euro dollar idea of all this money happening that's outside of the U.S. system, and so then it just becomes very difficult to even put our finger on exactly. What are we even counting here from a money supply point of view in the, in the talking about USD? Right. Um, we're not really counting anything. Uh, it's all backed by credit. And uh, we can tell if there's a problem in the credit market because of interest rates and because of financial crises and that kind of thing. So uh, we know that the market is healthy if there's no financial crisis. And we know that the credit market is not healthy if there is a financial crisis. Everything is interwoven. Everybody's debt is owned by somebody else who is rehypothecated 13 times and everyone's so closely integrated that uh, no, we can't like today, we can't even count the supply of gold really because there's all these paper receipts on top of gold, right? And then it's rehypothecated and lent out and used as collateral in some loan and, and et cetera, et cetera. So we can't really measure the amount of gold either. It's the same with dollars in the world. Um, all we know is that when there's pressure, in, deflationary pressure in the economy, uh, we're going to see it in interest rates and we're going to see it in a financial crisis that happens. Yeah. So it, in a way, it's like going to sort of make the point that the money supply metrics are just highly misleading. That if you look at M1, M2 and so on, they're just going to mislead you the wrong way. And it's I think there's a lot to this because they'll be changing classifications as well. So even in 2020, there was a big reclassification on M1. And so that also can lead people astray because then everyone's out here saying, oh, look, they printed 40% of the dollars in twenty in in you know in that year or whatever, but there was like a reclassification, and it, it makes it difficult to sort of disentangle like what's actually going on. Um, so I mean, bringing it back to your point around looking at credit markets and looking at okay, if there's a problem in the credit markets, that's how we can let's say infer some understanding of the, if there's a problem or not. I'm curious then, how would you distinguish between a genuine change in people's time preference. So, you know, in the Austrian understanding, there's Mises who talks about the PTPT, the pure time preference theory of interest. And so the idea is if we're very impatient, we should be having a very high interest rate. And if we're very patient, uh, I have a low interest rate because I'm patient, I guess, all things considered. So in your view, how would you distinguish the time preference part of that from what's going on out there in the world? Well, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I agree with the 
interest rate fallacy. So as people are fleeing towards more safe and liquid assets, they push the price down. So it's kind of the opposite. When when your time preference increases, uh, you're going to run into safe and liquid assets. And when your time preference uh, is longer, then you're able to you know, you're willing to carry more credit, you're willing to expand credit into the economy. And so interest rates will go up because uh, money printing is the same as inflation is the same as growth in a credit based system. Does that answer the question? Right. I think I, I probably don't agree. But okay, I'm curious <laughs> to understand because wouldn't you just naturally demand a higher like, because I guess what we're talking about here is all other things equal. Because maybe what you're getting at is maybe not everything else is equal, that maybe you're going, like, what we're talking about here is people will change what assets they hold as opposed to, for the same given scenario, what interest rate would you charge to relinquish your control? Like, so as an example, if I'm lending you $100 and I'm a very patient man, I might only charge you until 2% for one year's worth of time using my $100. But if I was a very impatient man, I'd say, oh, no, I, I want you to pay me 20% interest rate. Tw pay me $20 for this freedom to use my $100 that I'm relinquishing. I'm giving up control, right? Uh, yeah, on, on a micro scale. But on, on a macro scale, um, you have competitors, right? And so I, you can get, you want the most return. On, on your money. So you will go to the person that's willing to pay the highest interest rate. So um, yeah, maybe on, on a individual basis, one-to-one, -one, and there's no other alternatives, that's the case. But once you put it into a broad global market, you're going to have uh, a competition and there's going to be, it's going to obey different dynamics. Like I said, uh, if you have a, a booming economy, you don't necessarily need to hold safe and liquid assets. You can hold riskier assets that that yield a, that have a higher yield and so the demand for those treasuries or those bonds will go down because people don't want to hold them uh, they can hold something that's higher yielding and the interest rates will go up but in risky times the demand for safe and liquid assets increases and that that's on a global scale and it's also i would tinge it with there's a difference between credit-based money and commodity money because in commodity money the dynamics would be different because you can always default back to the basic commodity in a credit-based money there's nothing to default back to right that's why we have to bail out uh do all these bailouts and all this government spending to to reflate the bubble because if it does deflate we're in a mad max scenario and th they can't let that happen so there's different dynamics in a, cr a pure credit-based system and a commodity system i see and so i think yeah what you're getting at there is this deciding or trying to explain why people are holding different assets given the interest rate or given what their choices are. And I think part of what you're getting at there also is around that question of safety and what do we really view as safe? Obviously, if we were speaking a year ago, it was seen like obviously maybe you and I wouldn't have been running to all the quote unquote DeFi or the C CFI platforms that were gambling out on these DeFi things. But a lot of people would just thought, oh, look, you can get whatever, 8% or 20% on Anchor or whatever whatever thing. But once they realize, oh, wait, that's not safe, I'm running back to safety. Yeah, I think it was uh, this, this recent NFT bubble and DeFi bubble was just a mini Austrian business cycle, right? Credit expanded, we had a boom, and now everything collapsed back to, hopefully back to more uh, sound uh, valuations. Uh, so yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. And um, so then I think it's also interesting to get this, get your views around 
central banks and how they are responding? Because I know you're you're big into this component of it. So let's start uh, in the US. So we're we're looking at this whole idea of the Fed saying they're going to raise rates. What's your view on that? Are they going to continue on that pathway? Are they going to walk it back eventually? I, I don't think the Fed is in control of anything. They will follow the market. Their they uh, their main tool is jawboning and in expectation management. And they rely on this Fed mythology, the mythology around the central bank, that they're all powerful, that they can control interest rates, uh, that it matters if they do QE and all this stuff. So uh, they they depend on, you know, it's pounded into people that don't fight the Fed. Uh, So that's just an example of the mythology that surrounds the Fed that gives them this ability to kind of massage where the market is going. But in this case, I think they will be forced to pivot when the market dictates that. And it's getting closer. I mean, uh, I tweeted probably last month when the the three-month treasury bill was still below the Fed funds range. And I said, well, if it doesn't get into the current Fed funds range, there's no way they're going to raise it again. Of course, then it has since uh, with Fed expectations, the, the rates have come up into that the current range. And so I do think that they will be able to raise rates again. But if the interest rates don't move, then the Fed must pause or must pivot. They are always following the system. And eventually they will face a financial crisis, right? Like uh, September of 2019, the repo rumble, or when TARP was getting passed back in the great financial crisis. These are things where 24 hours make a big difference and the entire system is freezing up. Uh, the Fed will be forced to act. So yeah, that's that's what I think. And I, I do think it could come before the end of the year, but we'll see. So if that's the case, this idea of jaw burning, meaning the central bank governor or the president and so on in various countries, they sort of have this power to just talk the market up or down. Then what does that mean for, I guess, the other asset investable assets that people are typically going into, whether that's bonds or equities or even physical property? Uh, can you clarify that? What, what exactly do you mean? Yeah. So as an example, like, do you believe that they can jawbone the price of uh, well, I guess presu- like we're primarily we're talking here about bonds, right? Because if the idea is, hey, they can jawbone something by saying, hey, this is what we want to do with the Fed funds rate, and therefore probably the most closest connection to that is the bonds, right? Because that's that's probably the most close alternative. Because it's, I guess, this is also another interesting idea around uh, what some people call moneyness. That there are different levels of things that people would call money, and there are, and it kind of comes back to that idea of safety as well. Because sort of you know, in terms of university finance, your finance lecturer will tell you, "Oh, the ten-year bond is the risk-free rate." <laughs> of course, we yeah. all have our disagreements with that. But I suppose from what your point of view, you're saying that the the jawboning part of it is that they can influence the bond market in that way. They can influence uh, some market conditions in the short term and they can influence um, market sentiment, but market sentiment will always have to obey reality in the end, right? So um, yeah. just like they, they've they said recently that they can't affect the supply side, they can only affect the, the demand side. Uh, so they, they're saying they're like, we have to actually obey objective reality. And that's the, the supply. We Our powers only extend to the minds of the people because that's the demand side. So um, yeah. that, that's what I think, that they follow the market. And you made a good point there about teasing out the differences and the functions of money and moneyness. Um, I think that's a interesting topic that 
I think we can all agree that the unit of account is the U.S. dollar, at least the global reserve currency unit of account. Uh, but medium of exchange is a little bit different. Like, uh, can we say, like in repo transactions, we have cash and cash equivalents. Like, what exactly is the medium of exchange here that we're dealing with? And also the store of value. The, the store of value isn't dollars. The store of value is treasury. So when you're de- trying to define money in this euro dollar system, you're trying to measure all these different aspects of moneyness and how much they are uh, actually considered US dollar. They're all part of the dollar system and they all kind of function in this big credit, global credit market. Yeah, fascinating to think about. And so then if the government wants to, let's say, monetize its debt, because in some way, the government and say the Federal Reserve and the Treasury can sort of act in a way to help the government have a cheap cost of capital. And that's what actually funds a large state. So I'm curious your view, like how much power do they realistically have there? Or are you saying in a way that they, they have limited power in terms of jawboning, but actually the market and the reality of the West, the rest of the world, this whole broader euro dollar system is actually what drives their ability to do things or not do things? Yeah. So um, I, I don't agree necessarily with the definition of monetization of the debt, like the the Fed buying buying it. Uh, I think that treasuries are useful in and of themselves. They're not, they're usually, most treasuries are not held for the coupon. They're held for the utility in the market. So I can trade them for cash. I can uh, use them to form chains of collateral, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so they're, they're very valuable. And when by law, the banks are forced to participate in QE, they have to do that. Uh, they wouldn't want to because they want those treasuries. They'd re- much rather have treasuries than reserves at the Fed because reserves at the Fed are, are inert where treasuries are not inert. And um, so I, I don't agree with the kind of saying that it is uh, monetizing of the debt. It's actually deflationary. It's adding a deflationary pressure because as you take useful collateral out of the system, you're increasing the the stress in that system, right? Because you're, you're decreasing the amount of liquidity by taking the useful collateral out. And that's what happens in QE. And you can look at this in in uh, interest rates. So when QE is, well, I'm not prepared with the exact dates, but it's kind of the reverse sure. of what we would expect, right? Uh, QE is supposed to push down interest rates, but usually when QE is happening, interest rates are rising. And when QT is happening, interest rates are falling. So yeah, that's how I describe that. So in your in your hypothesis, then, are you saying that's because the market is moving against the Fed and the jaw burning? Is that the market, the reality, is moving, is pushing it this way, despite what the Fed is doing? Yeah, I would say the Fed jaw boning is a dependent variable. It's it's not an ind- independent variable. So they are jaw boning in a certain way. They have a certain narrative because the market is a certain way. So the market is isn't following the Fed. The Fed is following the market. They're dependent. If the, so, whatever their narrative is, is because that's the way the market is. So QE actually is kind of a, uh, it, it symbolizes stress in the system, right? So if, if I'm, if I'm a risk taker, if I'm a large financial institution and there's QE going on, I would say, well, the fed thinks it's really bad out there. So I'm not going to extend credit. I'm going to, you know, only extend credit to the most credit worthy borrowers. I'm going to pull back, you know, increase, increase my lending standards, pull back on the amount of uh, risk that I have on my balance sheet, uh, et cetera, because the Fed doing QE actually says that it's bad. And the only way it can get out of that is by reversing, right? If they start qu- quantitative tightening, then they're saying, hey, it's good out there. So uh, it's, it's reversed 
and the Fed is dependent on the market conditions. Right. And so what about this whole idea about the notion of being a lender of last resort or the notion of bailing them out? Uh, And so the other idea I'm thinking here is if there are commercial banks who have made bad loans, right? And the, the typical example is the 2008 with the mortgage-backed securities. They had all these bad loans that they had stuffed, packaged into a security. And this idea that the government is essentially bailing them out. So do you agree with that idea then? Or do you dis- are you disagreeing with that idea? Well, I think they can bail them out. Uh, but the way I think the bailouts work is that it's balance sheet mechanics, so they, they take a debt or an asset on the, the bank's balance sheet that is un, non-performing or underperforming, and they swap it for a reserve, another asset, uh, a reserve held at the Fed. That's what QE is. They take Supposedly, they take uh, underperforming assets and they replace it with more safe assets, which the reserve held at the Fed is the pretty much the safest asset you can have because it's at the Fed. So where, where was I going with that? Back to the show in a moment. Are you one of those people who leave your coins on the exchange or with a custodian? I know there are people out there. Make sure you think about storing your coins on keys that you control. Unchained Capital can help you with this because they can do a concierge onboarding. This is a personalized service to guide you through that process of setting up your cold storage and withdrawing to keys that you control. They ship you the hardware, they walk you through the setup on a video call, and they help you with withdrawal. And there's even some ongoing support afterwards. So if you are one of those people who has been putting it off, well, stop it. Take that time now, get it done sooner rather than later. So go to unchained.com slash concierge and use the code Levera to get your concierge onboarding program with Unchained Capital. For those people in the Bitcoin mining world, brains.com is the place to go. They have a range of educational content and they have Brains OS+. This is firmware that you can install on your ASIC mining machine. So go to the website and see which models are supported. It's as simple as going to there and seeing which models are supported. And if your model is supported, you can download and install this firmware. You can use it to auto-tune and improve your efficiency by as much as 20%. You can mine on any pool or you can point your hash rate towards slush pool and get zero percent pool fees and also slush pool is renaming to brains pool so all of the branding will be under the brains name so that website is brains.com that's b-r-a-i-i-n-s.com and now back to the show so basically i guess i think i I think i get where you're going though i I get because i think as i understand you it's like i think we pretty much agree on that idea that they are basically taking this toxic toxic asset off the commercial bank's balance sheet and saying, okay, I, the Fed, will hold that and you have, you know, this um, these bank reserves instead and you're able to now use that for your loans, credit creation. And I guess in your paradigm, though, you're, you're, you're also getting at this idea that they really want the treasuries, not the having bank reserves, Correct. So, central bank reserves, to be clear. Yeah, so the, the reserves, when they're on the bank's balance sheet, they're, they're supposed to, you know, QE is supposed to make the bank's balance sheet look better so that they will go out and lend. So the inflation that they want is the bank lending. So this is QE is balance sheet uh, magic, I called it at one point, balance sheet magic on the backside, making banks want to go out and lend into the economy and inflation and growth. Uh, That's the way it's supposed to work, but it it doesn't because it's uh, pulling collateral out of the system and it's telling the system that we're in bad times. And so as long as QE is happening, it's pulling collateral out, and it's also signaling to the market that there's a financial crisis approaching or that is in in progress. And so, um, 
the banks will be hesitant to lend. Yeah. And so how do you view the limits on lending for commercial banks, right? So in this scenario, they've got these additional, they've managed to, you know, palm off the non-performing loans. And so is the limiting factor for them creditworthiness? Like they're not able to find enough creditworthy customers to actually give a loan to? Yeah, uh, but I would put it at the bank's creditworthiness. So the bank will, on their balance sheet, it, you know, they're constantly in the repo market, uh, sourcing uh, sourcing cash, uh, lending collateral, doing all these things. And uh, the limit to their balance sheet, the limit to how much they can expand their balance sheet is their creditworthiness in the interbank system. And as soon as their creditworthiness in the interbank system goes down, then they, they won't be able to expand their balance sheet as much. So uh, I wouldn't say it's the borrower at all. It is all banks. It's all bank-centered. Gotcha. So it's almost like an upstream problem that it, let's say they, if they look really good to the people lending them money, then they are in turn able to issue a lot more loans and have a lot more customers and therefore grow a lot faster. Uh, whereas if they are, if they don't have a good reputation, then that's where they can get into trouble. Yeah. And, and then they own each other's debt, right? And they have credit default swaps on each other and they do all this stuff. So some maybe not major five big bank in the United States will own a credit default swap with Bank of America or something. And so they can use kind of Bank of America's credit rating to help them access capital and help them expand their balance sheet. Um, but everything is interwoven and dependent on each other in the interbank system. Uh, so that's that's the problem. When you have a financial crisis, a, a deflationary shock in the system, uh, it can all go down. And so then, curious from your perspective as well, because even in the Austrian world, there are people with differing views here. Do you view fractional reserve as being fractional reserve banking as being a bad thing, or do you sort of see a role for what's called in the like some people who call it free banking? So where where are you at on that? kind of question? Well, I try to not put uh, some sort of moral judgment on it. I think that uh, there will be people that fractional reserve. That's a fact of nature. And we can put restraints on it, or there will be more restraints on it, depending on the form of money. So Bitcoin or a commodity-backed money will put natural restraints on fractional reserve banking. Uh, but if you have a credit-backed money, there are no natural constraints to, uh, to fractional reserve banking. So um, I try not to do a moral judgment on that. I see. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there are different approaches even here, like even in some of the debates where, you know, some Austrians will sort of say, even setting aside the fraud question of whether it is fraud. Uh, I think personally, I am in the camp of saying it is fraud. But even if we set that aside, there are those who believe that given a free market, will we tend to one or the other? And there are some who believe that, okay, that reserve ratio will naturally, it may be at 2% or 5% of the bank's balance sheet. Whereas others in the, let's say, the full reserve camp might believe that naturally markets in a, in a, you know, under a sound money system will be up near 100% and it will be near a full reserve system. And so I think I fall into that camp where I believe naturally over time we will just kind of be near that full reserve because people will just get wrecked and then they'll learn and then people will sort of understand the difference between holding bona fide Bitcoin on chain that you hold in your, you know, in your wallet versus trusting an IOU. And I think in, in some sense, that's where this, 
this whole insight of not your keys, not your coins comes from? Yeah, um, I think that's dependent. Like you, you said, how the free market will attend one way or the other. I think that's dependent on the kind of climate that's out there in, in the market. So if we're in war, if we're in a period of war, we'll tend towards full reserve. If we're a period of peace and prosperity where people can get wrecked and bounce back easily and there's a lot of excess credit and it's easy to get credit and things are growing very quickly, I think people will tend towards fractional reserve, more fractional reserve. So uh, I think that you can't stop it from happening. Uh, it's just as kind of dependent on the global macro environment that's around you, uh, what the free market will tend towards. I see. So in your view then, there's this almost legend of people saying, oh, the, the, Volcker, the Volcker way of fixing things is to just have the interest rates really high and that will let the market normalize. So would you count yourself then as a non-believer of that story? Um, I think the, yeah, I would say I don't, I don't believe in the Volcker myth, but I am less hardcore about not believing in it than Jeff Schneider is. I think there is, uh, uh, the, the central bank has an easier ability to uh, influence things uh, in that direction than the other direction. So uh, there's something to be said about the Volcker myth, but really the, the whole um, inflation of the seventies, you know, the, the great inflation, I think is, uh, that was at the birth of the Euro dollar system. And there was so much space to expand this credit into. Um, I kind of think of it like maybe 20 or 30 year blocks. You know, you have the Western Europe was the place where credit expanded. Then we had Japan was the place where credit expanded. And then we have had China where the place uh, where credit has expanded in the last 20 or 30 years. So um, now we're kind of out of places to expand. And uh, the 70s was just like the initial phases of this system getting kickstarted. I see. So then are there any comparable historical periods in your view to where we are now in the 2020s? Are there, yeah, are there any educational historical financial periods for us? Not as a global system. I think that this post-World War II was the first ever global liberal order that we've seen, where the US was the hegemon that guaranteed free trade, set up all these international institutions like the UN, the IMF, the WTO, the World Court, all of this stuff was set up and we had free trade reigned. So that that doesn't have a parallel in history. You might say a certain period of the British Empire was similar, but you know, the British Empire didn't trade too much with the French Empire and, and the Dutch Empire. They, they had their own trade networks. So yeah, I would think you, you might be able to find some corollaries if you dive into maybe like the internal British Empire. And how that how the, how the credit expanded in there and, and credit and contraction and stuff, uh, but uh, not a global order where we can go continually go to the next country and find a new market to expand our credit into. But now we're at the end of that, and that's why I think you know we have the end of this credit bubble is happening because we've run out of places to expand this uh, euro dollar credit system. Uh, so it's it's going to go the other way. It's going to contract. I see, and so then taking what we've spoken about and also what you touched on at the start, we're at the end of this big cycle. What are your expectations then for the end of this cycle? Well, I think, um, I guess a, a characteristic of the euro dollar system that Jeff Schneider doesn't talk about at all is this global order that the U.S. had. 
Uh, and we had this era, this era of peace and prosperity. And of course, we had expeditionary wars for the US and stuff, but we didn't have global war. We didn't have war between the major powers. So uh, this was a general era of peace and prosperity in the world. Now the US is pulling back. We're, we're deglobalizing the US presence. And th this is not a conscious thing. It's, it's a natural thing where, uh, you know, the U.S. has hollowed out its manufacturing base, it's uh, hollowed out its culture, its values and all this stuff. And, and so we're kind of going to reshore all this and clean up our own house. Now, that's bad news for the rest of the world, because the U.S. was the one that was imposing this world court, this U.N., this uh, trade, WTO, trade uh, rule-based world order. When, when the U.S. pulls back, man, it's going to really affect the world's ability to carry credit. So credit is going to shrink dramatically uh, in all of these, these countries. And I think we go back to a world where uh, geography matters a lot more, that we're going to go back to our historical norms. So that, like this thing with Ukraine and Russia right now, uh, that, that's one of the most fought over parts of land in the history of the world is Ukraine. Uh, it's not a coincidence that that was the first big flare up when the end at the end of this U.S. led order, because we're going to go back to normal historical norms. So uh, areas that are war torn in the last 2000 years, they're going to go and they, they've been peaceful for the last 50 because of the U.S. imposed order. They're going to go back to being war torn again. And that's going to affect their economies, of course, uh, affect the ability for the U.S. to care or the, the world economy to carry credit uh, while the U.S. becomes more insular and takes care of our own house. So it's almost like we're going to see a bit of a shrinking of uh, the economy in some ways. And let's say the living standard that people have become accustomed to will have to drop, sadly. Well, it depends. I think some things will shrink and other things will, will expand or grow. Uh, we'll get back to better values. You know, we'll get back to, uh, I mean, I look at demographics as a result of like just piss poor culture and piss poor values in the world. Uh, so, you know, we will get back to family, nuclear family stuff, uh, regional government, localism. Uh, and so it, it's not that our standard of living will decrease. It is that we will change our standards of living. And uh, that that's what I see going for. I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm super optimistic about the United States, but I am very optimistic for a lot of other places in the world uh, because they will, you know, get their culture back. They'll get their, their, traditionalism back. And I think that's good for people. It's, it's the reason why those cultures developed in the first place is because they were healthy. So I think, um, you know, we'll see a rise in health. We'll see a rise in uh, happiness in the world, uh, even though we might see smaller balances in the bank account. I see. Yeah. So it may be that um, the cultural gains uh, make up for some of the purchasing power losses in certain cases. Um, I, I guess what's important for us to also do is to separate what we want from what we think is likely of course so so of course you know people bringing back family values and uh, that those aspects definitely appeal to me uh, but i think for me i i'm sort of seeing the end of this fiat degeneracy cycle and not sure how much more um they can kick the can because that's the other component of it as well because it's difficult to sort of say this is it this is the end of it because we don't really know how much longer they can kick the can uh, you know, communism took five, six decades to fall. It may be that they, and again, not speaking about what I want, I'm just kind of speaking about what do I think is likely? We don't know. Do So I guess to put that into a question, in your view, 
how likely is it that they can kick the can and keep the re- retain some semblance of the uh, current world order? Yeah, so that's a part of my theory about how this ends. Right, this ends. I think that the current system ends in a deflationary grind, a post GFC normal, uh, just low growth, low inflation going forward. They can kick the can pretty much indefinitely without an alternative. So I think that's where Bitcoin comes in. Bitcoin is that alternative that offers like, think, you know, if you're in a, a geriatric deflationary economy, which is the old US dollar credit based system, uh, and you see Bitcoin, which is this new technology with, on an S curve of adoption, and that's where all the green shoots are. And that's where uh, all the vibrancy is. You're, you're going to slowly move over to that new new system. So I see uh, the arrival of Bitcoin as a way to get out of this trap. This, this uh, trap that didn't have an end uh, before Bitcoin came along. Like think about uh, Japan, you know, they've been in this low growth, low in- inflation environment for since 1990. And the, the US would have, and the, the world, maybe the, uh, to expand that to the entire world, uh, would be in a low growth, low inflation environment too for another 30 years. But uh, I think Bitcoin gives the alternative, gives us something to build a new economy on. Sure. Uh, so I guess there's two main points. So firstly, I want to ask about, so bringing it back to that whole question of, are we in inflation or deflation? And as you've said, we're in a, you're saying we're in a deflationary environment. So I'm curious then, what's your view on where CPI, consumer price inflation goes over the short to medium term? Like, do you see CPI normalizing soon? Okay. Well, I think that most of CPI is due to a supply shock. Uh, I'm not going to say that there's no inflation because I, I think that there is mild inflation out there. I mean, you have to, uh, you know, a credit-based system has to grow a little bit because you have to repay principal and interest. So the, the, the amount of money has to grow if it's not collapsing. Uh, so I do think that there's some inflation. But if you look at uh, CPI between, say, 2010 and uh, 2018, that is the average that we're going to return to. Uh, eventually. That's just the minimum amount of inflation to keep the wheels from falling off and stuff like that. Uh, recently, we've had high CPI because mainly because of supply chains. But there, I mean, there's, there is, um, there's nuance here because, you know, if you have government spending, you're pulling demand forward and that makes banks maybe think that there, there is a, this booming economy. And so then maybe they will lend a little bit more after government spending happens, after a rescue package happens. So there is maybe a little bit more inflation after government spending, but it's leaving a big gap of demand in the future. And so they will very quickly see reality and pull back on their lending and go into a, go back to normal, go back to a, uh, just a mild inflation. I see. So in your view, then it's the CPI, the current high prints that we're seeing around the world, whether that's in the US, the UK, other places, you're saying that's mainly driven by supply chain issues or the web of supply, the places that people can supply, um, borrow or sorry, buy things from is being impacted because of trade around the world, obviously because of the hysteria and obviously because of the U- Russia-Ukraine war. But in your view, you're saying you anticipate that to normalize sooner than later, let's say. Yeah, I think there will be echoes. Uh, so there'll be volatility. Uh, kind of an analogy is if you think of like a, a, a tank of water, and it's a timeline, right? So from front to back, it's a timeline. And the, the water level is your amount of demand or growth in the economy. And government spending is like putting your hand down there halfway down the, the, 
the water tank and pulling it forward. So you're pulling forward all this demand. But then what happens is it sloshes back the other way and then you get some volatility. But if you wait long enough, yeah, it'll just turn back to normal uh, once all those perturbations have played themselves out. I see. So you're seeing it like a displacement theory, if you will. I'm also curious on, obviously, we're all bullish on Bitcoin. So I think probably the main challenge, right, if I was a skeptic, I might be thinking, well, hang on, you two, Bitcoin is pretty small right now. It's something like 450 billion yeah. as, as a total market. That's tiny compared to gold, 11 or 12 trillion. Um, you know, equity markets are probably, what, 90, 100 trillion or more. Um, so what's your response? If, if a skeptic were to ask you that, why, you know, why, would, why would Bitcoin be the answer? Yeah, and I, I agree with that criticism, actually. I've been saying uh, for the last few years that uh, Bitcoin's market cap needs to expand. It's not a right now. It's a theoretical alternative at three hundred billion dollar market cap. Um, it has all the right characteristics to get to where it needs to be, but uh, you're not going to move a trillion dollar market over to Bitcoin right now, you know, or multi trillion dollar market. So Bitcoin's market cap needs to expand. To I, I put the mark around gold, so ten to twenty trillion needs to be the market cap before it is seen as a major alternative and before the the you know, snowball really picks up a lot of speed. Yeah. So what does the process look like then um, for people to get there? Is it enough people getting burnt in the fiat system? Is it people who are in high inflation? Because not just the US, right? They may be in a country where they actually do have a lot of inflation uh, and or they're very high CPI. Um, do you see it like they will be the ones who adopt Bitcoin first? Or is it more like, you know, uh, high net worth people in America and other places who will be the ones buying most of the coin? Yeah, I think, uh, well, there's a couple different routes. Like I talked about the S-curve of adoption. Uh, this is where all the green shoots will be. And so people will put more investment here. Uh, so it'll expand naturally that way. Uh, but also, I think that there is, we've been, we've been talking about this a lot on FedWatch, the podcast that I do with Bitcoin and Markets, uh, with uh, Bitcoin Magazine, is that there's a fragmentation risk in Europe, right? So that's the the, uh, the threat that, uh, say, Italy leaves the euro. And that's really a scary prospect if you're going against George Soros, right? So George Soros is famous for attacking currencies. Well, if you launch a new Italian lira, uh, not backed by anything, it's just backed by the credit of Italy or something, then it's, it's going to get attacked. So in this fragmentation that we're going to see over the next a few years in Europe and elsewhere in the world as they might want to move away from, say, a dollar-based system uh, to launch their own currencies, they're going to have to back it by something. So I think they will turn, most places will turn to Bitcoin, but we could also see them turn to gold, uh, things like that. So um, I think the fragmentation risk is actually bullish for Bitcoin. Yeah, interesting. Because in a way, rather than uh, fending for themselves, they can sort of opt into this open neutral network and anyone can join it. And there's also the freedom aspect of this also, because many people in, let's say, our camp are rightly wary of, let's say, entities like the World Economic Forum. And we see that as an entity who's driving a lot of authoritarian control. And obviously, those of us more in the libertarian camp are looking for alternatives to that. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on whether, let's say, the WEF and these and these other related entities are actually going to drive Bitcoin adoption. Well, let me just talk about the WEF first. I think a lot of these these uh, kind of Marxist theories, the Marxist uh, organizations out there, they thrive in a credit-based system because there is a lot of excess 
abundance, right? And if we go into hard times and we go into a worldwide recession, um, we get away from credit-based money and go to a harder money, uh, then they're those ideas and those organizations will have a very hard time staying in existence. So I'm not really worried about the WEF long-term, but I, I don't like their current policies, right? Uh, and I think we, we can kind of see them flailing a little bit they're, they constantly are losing. They lost, I think, really, I, I think that they lost during the coronavirus. They, people accepted their uh, lockdowns and things for the most part, but they didn't like it. And I don't think that's going to happen again in the United States. It's not going to happen again in many countries in the world. Uh, definitely not Russia. Uh, it's not going to happen there. But um, so I think that they they wished that they would have gotten more buy-in from the world and they didn't, they kind of failed that it, it, it hurt their reputation. It hurt their ability to do that in the future. And so I see that as a loss. Um, and I see a lot of this ESG stuff right now as a big loss because with Russia, uh, and the European union facing these high energy prices and they, they're only doing that because, uh, buying into this globalist dogma of ESG and climate change and stuff that uh, I think they're really taking a hit in their reputation as well right now. So that, that's what I would say about WEF and and even the UN, because I saw that the UN just uh, like approved some charter or something that was in conjunction with the WEF. Now they're going to work together to push this ESG stuff. So I think that when we get to sounder money, we won't have to worry about those things. Right. Uh, and I'm also curious then, in a hypothetical Bitcoin financial system, do you see that like Bitcoin would stop the creation again of some of these problems? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, I think it will for the medium term. I'm talking 50, 50 years, 100 years or so, but eventually we'll get into uh, a system once again that's really inflationary, really credit-based and things will expand and there might be war, uh, war might change. So instead of being, you know, actually kinetic stuff, it's more cyber war. So I, I don't know, but I think that Bitcoin can usher in a period, at least 50 to hundred years of very sound money, very sound values. And so I think that's, that's what we're going to see, but long-term, yeah, there's going to be cycles in, in human history. Uh, hu humans go through these long, broad cycles and Bitcoin isn't going to cure us of our human nature or anything like that. There's always going to be murderers. There's always going to be, uh, countries that want to drive their tanks across borders and stuff. There's always going to be that kind of thing. Uh, but Bitcoin gives the world a better base, which to, uh, build off of. I see. And so, and I think it's definitely fair to say, at least in that 50 to 100 years, it's going to make warfare a lot harder. Like, let's say we were on a Bitcoin standard, obviously funding that war is going to be a lot more difficult uh, if you have to actually get the, raise the funds for it in a Bitcoin context. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The, the warfare won't be at the, in the place where it's, uh, you know, economically vibrant. I don't, I don't think the U.S. is going to have like a North American war or anything like that. The, the war is going to be in Eastern Europe. It's going to be in Central Asia. It's going to maybe be in Africa or something. Th these places that are going to be uh, economically less vibrant anyway. And they're, they're not going to want to uh, they're not going to want Bitcoin because Bitcoin puts these restrictions on the power to 
inflate the money and, and have war. Like if I, here's an example. If I am living next to a guy that, you know, is constantly threatening me and constantly like throwing stuff over my fence, maybe firecrackers, or, you know, he puts a sign on my house, like I'm going to break in at night and and I'm just terrified. Right. And that's what a lot of these countries, when they, they're living next to their mortal enemies that have been in these ethnic conflicts for thousands of years, they hate each other. Now, those, those people don't want sound money because they can't inflate to keep their, their uh, protection racket going. So they, they have a reason to inflate money, I think. But the, the more peaceful, prosperous areas uh, are going to turn to Bitcoin. And it'll remain to be seen, but it could also be that those countries and areas or zones, regions operating on sound money will just be so much more productive that their technology would be vastly superior also. So they would be much more able and capable to defend themselves against attacks and uh, also to make it less profitable to even go to war there because it's just cheaper to trade with them instead of attacking them. And it's kind of like Bitcoin mining. It's eventually, you, you, you know, if you're trying to take on all these Bitcoin mining machines, it's, it, becomes, it comes a point where you can just earn more from being an honest miner than trying to attack the network. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen that exact thing happen in history, right? Like China's century of humiliation, they were extremely weak, even though they had a big land empire, they the British like conquered them with 28 men or something. I mean, it was ridiculous, the the difference in power that these two places had. So I think we'll return to things like that places in the world will be extremely weak. And places in the world will be extremely strong. That's like kind of the rule of human history. And we're just going to go back to it. Like I I keep coming back to the last 50, 75 years has been a bubble. This has been a bubble of peace and prosperity. And that's not going to happen. Uh, Not every place is going to benefit from this coming change that we're going to see in the world. Uh, But I I would say most places are. And that's going to it's going to follow kind of the rhythm of history in a way. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. So uh, I guess uh, any uh, closing thoughts? And I'm, I'm curious as well if you sort of see, so I know CK is big on the sovereign individual. I'm curious, actually, do you have any thoughts on whether Bitcoin enables that kind of vision? Uh, I think Bitcoin will enable that for people, certain people, certain individuals, but not on a broad scale. Um, I think that like I am... I hate to say it, but I don't think Bitcoin is going to be good for uh, a lot of these poor countries that people think like Bitcoin is going to serve the un- unbanked and it's going to bring uh, savings to Africa. It's going to bring savings to these places. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I think that Bitcoin is going to pool into the places where it's treated best. It's going to pool with the most able people you, you could. I mean, like we just talked about there, uh, there is going to be a greater inequality between nations under Bitcoin. I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. I, I try not to make a judgment call. I just try to use my uh, kind of framework to try to predict what's going to happen. Excellent. Well, uh, I think that's a good spot to finish there. So listeners, make sure you go follow Ansel. You can find him on Twitter. His handle is at Ansel Lindner and his website is bitcoinandmarkets.com. Ansel, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Stefan. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 398. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.